0: As you can tell from Mark's reading of this passage, we have an incredible feast before us today. Uh, A great panoramic view of God's dealing with the people of Israel. This happens to be the longest Old Testament recounting of a storyline of God's faithfulness to his people that we have. Uh, It's here in Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 9. I've entitled this message... um, Borrowing from another brother, faithful God and faithless people. Faithful God, faithless people. Because we are so prone to sin, and because God is so rich in mercy, ongoing repentance should mark our lives, says one pastor. We are prone to sin. We are prone to wonder. And yet God continues to meet our wondering with his incredible mercy. And so as Christians, we live a life of repentance and faith. This is what we are and who we are. And as we look today at this passage, we're going to be like looking in a mirror. And so hopefully we don't view this passage as, I can't believe the Israelites and how they did these things, and I'm just shocked that they would so quickly turn from the God who was so good and gracious and kind to them. In the first six chapters, we've dealt with the building of the wall, and the wall was built in 52 days. And now, in chapter 7, you remember, we had this entire accounting of all the people who had a genealogical record to show they were part of Israel. And so we're trying to get the people of God who had made a covenant with God gathered together together, And then in chapter 8, we saw the word of God brought to bear upon these people to remind them of what the covenant was supposed to be like and what they were supposed to do in order to keep covenant with God. And you remember in chapter 8 that as they started reading the law, the people began to weep and mourn as they realized what they and their fathers had done in their relationship to God. And they were told at that point that the day was a holy day and they were to be rejoicing in the Lord. There would be a time to deal with their sin later, but right now, let's rejoice, let's celebrate. And so that was on the first day of the seventh month. We now come to chapter 9. This is the 24th day of the month. So they've had this bottled up for 23 days. And on this day, it's appropriate for them to fast and to mourn, to put on sackcloth, to throw dirt on their head in acknowledgement of their sin before a holy God. And so we see that they separated themselves from the foreigners. There were people in among them who were believing in, in God. They were coming and being part of that community, but they weren't the people who had had the history that the rest of them had. And so those people were newcomers. They, didn't, they weren't the ones to be grieving and mourning over the sin. This was Israel's chance to grieve and mourn over their own sin and the sin of their fathers. And again, they stood and read the law for a quarter of the day, three hours. Then they spent a quarter of the day in worship and confession and they had the Levites busy shouting out these things to the people back and forth. They had to, and they were constantly saying these things about the Lord. So we go to verse 5. And the Levites say this, Stand up and bless the Lord, your God, from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. This God that they served was glorious and great beyond all that they could imagine. So we're gonna look as we walk through this passage and we're gonna have to kind of speed walk because it's 37 verses. We're gonna see the faithfulness of God and right alongside we're gonna see the faithlessness of his covenant people. The faithfulness of God, the faithlessness of his covenant people. And as we read it, we're going to be shocked as we see how quickly they become faithless. But then we're going to realize, that looks like somebody else I know. There's a familiar ring here. And so this should be both a discouraging passage for us and an incredibly comforting passage when we get a chance to see who our God is on display throughout the course of Old Testament history. First of all, we see in verse 6, it says, You are the Lord, you alone. There is only one God, and Yahweh is his name. There is no other God. And for this declaration alone, we will be persecuted for that. In a pluralistic, relativistic society where everybody has their way to get to God, when you declare there's only one God and the Father and Jesus are the way they're identified, you will face growing persecution in that. This reminds us of, De- of Deuteronomy 6, 4. Remember, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, or Yahweh, our God. Yahweh is one You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength. There is only one God and he deserves all that you have. And as we go through this passage, we're going to literally see the signposts of God's dealing with people throughout history. So who is God? He's alone. God. There is no other. All other gods are not gods. There is only one God. God. Then, first signpost, creation. So as we're looking at God's faithfulness, first of all, he's faithful in creation. And so we see this panoramic view of all the Old Testament brought to bear right here in this passage. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that's in it, the sea and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. He starts with creation. Creation is important. Why is creation important? Because you and I were created by him. That means that you belong to him. Jesus tells us in Colossians 1:16 that everything was made through him and for him. We were made for him. Not just believers, but unbelievers as well. We were all made for him. His creating us causes us to be responsible and accountable to him. And this is why we have Darwinian evolution. If we can come up with a fanciful tale of how the world came to be, in which God did not create us, then we are not accountable to God. But the scripture is clear. We are accountable to God because he created the heavens and the earth and he filled the seas and he filled the earth with everything in it. he made you in the image of God and therefore you belong to him. You belong to him. And we need to fight for that. This is why creation's attack, isn't it? If creation falls, then God's your responsibility to God falls. But the scripture is clear. The infallible word of God. Well, Genesis 1 through 9 is not accurate. Well, okay, here we are in Nehemiah. Is that not accurate as well? Because the creation account is all through the scriptures. So it starts with creation. And God made, as we've talked about this morning with Mark, everything was made what? good it was a wonderful creation and the pinnacle of his creation was he created man in his own image that he might reflect the glory of God that he might walk with God and have a relationship with God second mile marker first creation second the Abrahamic covenant verse 7 you are the Lord the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. This is Genesis 12 where he chose Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. He chose him. And in verse 8 he found his heart faithful before you and made his a covenant To give to his offspring the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Gergesites. And you have kept your promise, for you are righteous. He chose Abraham. He chose to be merciful to Abraham. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was the father of faith. He chose God. One man of all the inhabitants to relate with, to be a blessing to, that it would spread to all the peoples of the earth. He promised to give him the land of Canaan. If you turn to Genesis chapter 15, we just read that this this month in our readings, if we're reading through our scripture reading. In Genesis 15, God tells Abram to take all these animals and to kill them and to cut them in half. And he, he kills the animals and some of them he can't even cut them in half. He just puts some on one side and some on the other. And there's just kind of this, this wall of dead animals on both sides. And there's going to be a covenant made between Abraham, Abram and God. And so here's Abram, and it's getting dark, and he's fighting off the birds of prey that are trying to eat the meat. And the scripture says in verse 12, and as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And then the Lord said to Abram, again, he's talking to him while he's what? Asleep. Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in the land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for yourself, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in the good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, Behold a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between those pieces of dead animal. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, "To your offspring, I will give this land." So the covenant really only had one partner in it. They were both part of the covenant, but who made the commitment in the covenant? God did. Abraham was asleep. It wasn't, Abraham, if you do this, 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 and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, this, then I'm going to do this. The covenant was, I am going to do this. I'm going to give you the land. Why am I not giving you the land now? Because the time of the Amorites is not complete. Their sin had not reached the level to which God was going to judge it. So by the time they were in Egypt for 400 years in captivity that would give the Amorites the time for their, their unrighteousness to reach a level in which God would judge them. Notice the Abrahamic covenant is a covenant in which God promises to be faithful without a response from Abraham. So here we have that. The, the incredible Promise to give his offspring all of this land. Why did that promise take place? Because Abraham was so good? No, because God was good. God was merciful. God was gracious. Next mile marker, the Exodus, verse 9. Let me find my way back over here. Nehemiah 9, and you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, all the people of his land, for you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divide the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. God has been faithful in creation. He's been faithful to call out Abram. He is now faithful to set them free from their captivity to the Egyptians. We remember the ten plagues that brought them out of Egypt. We remember him dividing the Red Sea as he talks about here, destroying the Egyptian army. He was able to protect his people. And notice what he says here, just a little statement. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. Why did God what was God's primary reason for rescuing his people from Egypt? The answer was not to set them free. That was not the primary objective. The primary objective was that he his name would be glorious. That he would be seen as worthy of worship. Did he love his people? He did. Did he want to set them free? Yes, he did. That was, that was priority number two. Priority number one was that he would make a name for himself as it is to this day. If you turn to Ephesians chapter 1, he talks about our salvation. Ephesians 1, if we can all turn there quickly, practice our Bible sword drills. Verse 4, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world for the purpose that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, here it is in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Salvation, not only did he save Israel for the purpose of his glory, he saved us for what? The purpose of his glory. Salvation is first and foremost about him and about his glory. And secondly, it is about loving us and rescuing us from our sin. But it's first about his glory. And this is why we're called to do what? Worship him. Because he is glorious. He is righteous, he is great, he is good. And we're going to see this passage, he is merciful. And we could worship from the rising of the sun to the setting of the same and never worship him enough. It is about his glory. So not only was Israel's salvation about his glory, our salvation is about his glory. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. He's talking about the prophets who received the word from the Lord. And they're trying to write this prophecy down that's been revealed to them. 1 Peter 1, 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. The prophets were not serving themselves. They were serving you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit. Sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This grand covenant that God made with Abram, Abraham, is something that angels are intrigued by. They are amazed at who this great and glorious God is, and they're astounded. That he is interacting with a people on earth in this way. And they are fascinated by it. We are blessed people. We are blessed people. We are blessed people. Amen. We are blessed people that God would do this for us and for Israel. So we have the Exodus. Next signpost, we go to Mount Sinai. God gives them the law, verses 13 and 14. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. And remember how that went? Him speaking with them was so terrifying, they told Moses, You go talk to him, we'll stay here in the tents. It was terrifying as he came down upon that mountain. But notice what he did. He gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes, and commandments. Isn't it amazing how God's law always gets a bad rap? It's always something horrible. We have God's law. We have to obey God's law. Notice how the scripture defines it. Right rules, true laws, good statutes, and commandments. What we see going on in our country is the replacement of those things for man made rules and laws and statutes. And we already have an inkling of how that's going to go, don't we? People are going to be abused, people are going to be hurt. When men make rules, out of their own for their own good pleasure instead of following the laws of a good and gracious and holy God it's not going to be a good thing that's why the battle continues to rage in many court cases really a replacement of man-made rules in place of God's rules notice the law was good notice verse 14 and you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and the law by Moses, your servant. He gave them a day off. He commanded them not to work for a day. That's really hard for some of us, isn't it? We just kind of have to do something on that day, don't we? What a blessing. And we saw, we heard this morning in the children's hour about how God created the Sabbath Because he rested on the seventh day. God worked six days, rested one. He set a pattern for us to rest one day and work what? Six. What a blessing that God would tell you, rest for your good. Rest. Work six. Rest. Why? Because that's my pattern that I gave you. Then we go to verse. We go on down to the wilderness, and you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go into the and possess the land that you had sworn to give them. And by the pillar of the cloud, in verse 12, you led them by day. And by the pillar of fire in the night, you, 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 to light for them the way in which you should go. He guided them through the wilderness. He gave them food for 40 years. He provided for them. He cared for them in the wilderness. He sustained them all the way. what a faithful God to rescue these people from Egypt to bring them to Mount Sinai and give them his good word and then to sustain them through the wilderness and he had to deal with their complaining in the wilderness and then he is on the cusp of bringing them into the promised land he has them at Kadesh Barnea and we remember what happened there don't we Let's send in 12 spies to see what's going on. Ten spies came back and said, oh, we can't do that. That's not going to be a good deal. Two said, yes, we can. We can take this land. Joshua and Caleb. We can do this. God is good. He's going to take care of us. Don't you remember Egypt and what he did in Egypt? Our God is good. He is great. The ten said, no, our God is wicked. And he's brought us here so we can all die. Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you had performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. Yes, they did. That's Numbers 14. They were going to go back to slavery in Egypt. How crazy was that? This is what sin is, isn't it? It's complete idiocy in the face of a good and gracious and kind God. We have two German shepherds. One is named Liesel and one is named Samson. Liesl's a faithful dog. When you call her, she comes. When you tell her to sit, she sits. When you tell her to lay down, she lays down. Samson? He is stiff-necked. He is a stiff-necked dog. He is a foolish dog. So the other morning... We have this little thing where we drive out of the, out of the, out of the gated uh, property. And Samson will run to the gate. And then instead of going outside the gate, he will run down the inside of the fence and try to beat us to the end as we're driving away. And he thinks he's so great because he always gets there just a little bit before us. And he looks at us as we pry by. So it's this great game that goes on. Now when Samson, Samson will come to you a lot. But when Samson realizes he's free no, he's not going to come to you. We have spent time trucking over the, over the Clark's property looking for Samson, finding Samson, trying to get Samson back. So the other day, Samson had found himself outside the gate. He followed somebody out and was outside the gate. He's free. He's free. He could go anywhere he wants, but he's outside the gate. But he's used to running and chasing us Inside the gate. So we pop the gate open. And instead of him running away and going off into the neighborhood to wreak havoc. He runs inside the gate. So he can beat us to the corner running inside the gate. He thinks he's so smart. And we close the gate. And he's inside. This is the Israelites, isn't it? We're getting ready to go into the promised land, the land of freedom that God's going to give us. But no, no, no. That's too scary. So we want to go back to Egypt. We want to go back to slavery. Samson is a foolish dog. He trades freedom to chase us inside the gate. For a lot of us, Because of our habit patterns, we continue to be foolish going back to those same things that enslave us. When in reality, we have been set free. So here we are. They're in the wilderness. They are going to go into the promised land and they become stiff-necked at going in. And that sends them into 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. We move on down. In the wilderness, of course, you remember the golden calf. And look how God, even though they rebelled, the Bible says in the end of 17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. What a faithful God, ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, when they are being absolutely stiff-necked to their own destruction. And they stood there with a golden calf. And they said, this is your God who brought you out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. Cows are stiff-necked too, by the way. Isn't it interesting they're worshiping a calf? Appropriate. Very appropriate. There are stiff-necked people worshiping a stiff-necked animal. There we have it. But he says in verse 19, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. What would have been the appropriate response for God? To left them to it. Left them. And does he? No, he doesn't. He stays with them. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the, in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. He did not forsake them. This is the God you and I serve. Isn't that an encouragement? Not only did he not forsake them, he doesn't forsake us. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. A stiff-necked people, and he still what? Feeds them, gives them water to drink, and guides them throughout their wilderness journey. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. Verse 22, now we're heading into what? Conquest of the promised land. So we've had the wilderness, now we're in the promised land. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants, no, key word there. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued them before the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and their peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. Notice, the fathers didn't go in. They all died in the wilderness. But God was gracious to the descendants and brought them in. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of all good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Then we see the word nevertheless. Even though you gave them the land, they were, verse 26, disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Let me get this straight. You gave them this rich land where they didn't have to build houses or dig out wells or plant vineyards. They were able to come in, prop their feet up, and enjoy the fruit of the land. And they ate and were happy, and then they did what? Rebelled. They rebelled. Are we not like that? God gives us an incredible blessing, and we turn around, and, and right behind it comes our rebellion. We trust Christ. Christ saves us, and immediately we go and do what? Sin. These two portraits are pretty interesting, aren't they? I like God's portrait a whole lot better. Ours, Eh, it's not looking too good. So here they are. They're in the land. Derek Kidner, an Old Testament scholar, said they lacked nothing. They lacked nothing and they appreciated nothing. They lacked nothing. And they appreciated nothing. Is that us? God has given us everything we need for life and godliness? Beyond what we can even imagine. I think that's why it's so good for us to go to third world countries. Just on the physical possession side of things. Not to mention the spiritual blessings we have. We lack nothing and yet we appreciate nothing. They did not appreciate anything. And because they didn't, they went off into rebellion again. So now we go from being the conquest of the land. The next mile marker now is the judges. So we've had wilderness, conquest of the new land. Now we're dealing with the judges. Verses 27 and 28. Therefore you gave them into the hands of their enemies who made them suffer. In the time of their suffering they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, here we see that again, You gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven. And many times you delivered them according to your mercies. So what's the pattern? God is good to his people. They become stiff-necked and rebel. God then brings enemies against them. Then they cry out for mercy. Then God rescues them. Then they have a time of rest. God gives them something good. Then they turn around and they rebel again. This is what we see in Judges over and over And over again. They were a rebellious people. Even though they are God's people. 29 and 30. Now we're getting into the time of the kings. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments. But sinned against your rules which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and a stiffened their neck and would not obey. How many of us have read through the Old Testament and the accounts of the kings? It is just a cycle, isn't it? You might have a good one here or there. Most of them are turning in rebellion against God. That's what they're doing. Even some of the great kings like Hezekiah in the end became became proud or Uzziah became proud and had God had to deal with them or their son was in rebellion. It's a constant cycle of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion and God continues to be merciful and merciful and merciful and merciful and merciful. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through the prophets. Old Testament prophets, all the major and minor prophets are stories of just warning the people about what's going on. He's constantly warning them to turn back to God. And yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. In other words, you gave them up to Assyria, you gave them up to Babylonia. So now we're in exile. We're off into exile because of our rebellion. Verse 31 is amazing. Nevertheless, In your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. What did they deserve? They deserved to be no more. And yet, in his mercifulness and graciousness, he sent them off into captivity. This constant cycle we see over and over again. You and I don't deserve salvation. None of us here deserve salvation. It is the kind and gracious gift of God to us in Christ Jesus. And it's not because of our performance, as we've talked about over and over again, it's because of His mercy. God is merciful. If we turn to Lamentations, chapter three. This is a great verse for us. "The steadfast love, three verses 22. "The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Aren't you grateful for the steadfast love of God? Aren't you grateful that his mercies never come to an end? Remember when Peter talked to Jesus and said, Jesus, how many times should we forgive our neighbor? And Jesus said, 70 times seven. In other words, an endless amount. How could Jesus tell him to do that? Because the Father had done that with Israel. And Jesus does that with us. When we sin, what is our first response? To try to do better? Or to run to the merciful one? May I encourage you? You're not going to be better unless you run to the merciful one. Run to the merciful one. He is the one who has all that we need. Remember Hebrews 4, 14 through 16? Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The overarching theme of this chapter is the mercy of God to His people. If you take nothing else from the sermon today, God is merciful. He was merciful toward you and bringing you to Christ. And He will continue to be merciful toward you because you are in Christ. And so as you sin, and you will sin, and I will sin and we do sin, run to the merciful one. And as you're with the merciful one and and drawing from him, you now have the power to begin to obey the Lord God in a way that is a blessing. As we look at this passage, we see the faithful God and the faithless people. And this whole story is building to a point because the people here need him to be merciful again. They need, one more time, we need some mercy. We need it again. We are your people. Look at verse 32 and following. Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, upon our princes, upon our priests, upon our prophets, upon our fathers, and all our people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and, you have, and we have acted wickedly. God, there has been no strike against you. You have been faithful and righteous and merciful. We are a wicked people. Our kings and our priests and our prophets and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your own great great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, what's the result? Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. They're under the oppression of other kings because of their rebellion and we're going to look next week at the covenant that they sign. But they want to write out a covenant and to recommit themselves to repent of their sin and to follow this good God. This last part begins to sound a little bit like where we're at, don't we? More and more the work of our hands is going to other people. More and more the tax load begins to get heavier. More and more, it's harder to make, the, make ends meet. Why is that? Because as a people, we have turned our back on God. We need to repent as the church. We need to repent of our sin and turn and follow him. But God is merciful. Merciful. as we close. Max Lacato tells a story about a young girl from Brazil who wanted to see the world. Discontent with the home, having only a pallet for a floor and a wash basin and a wood burning stove, this little girl dreamed of a better life in the city. And so one morning she slipped away, breaking her mother's heart, Knowing what life on the streets would be like for her young, beautiful little daughter, Maria hurriedly packed to go find her. On her way to the bus stop, she entered a drugstore to get one last thing, pictures. So she went into the photographic booth, closed the curtain, and she took as many pictures as she possibly could of herself. Then armed with the pictures, she caught a bus into the city. Maria knew Christina, her daughter, had no way of earning money. She also knew that her daughter was too stubborn to give up. When pride meets hunger, a human will do things that were completely unthinkable. Knowing this, Maria began her search in bars, hotels, nightclubs, any place with a bad reputation. She went to the mall, and at each place she left her picture taped on the bathroom mirror, or tacked to the hotel bulletin board, fastened to the corner of a phone booth. And on the back of each photo, she wrote a note. It wasn't long before both the money and the pictures ran out and Maria had to go home. The weary mother wept as the bus began its long journey back to her small village. It was a few weeks later that young Christina descended the hotel stairs. Her young face was tired, her brown eyes no longer danced with youth, youth, but spoke of pain and fear. Her laughter was broken, her dream had become a nightmare. A thousand times over she had longed to trade these countless beds for her secure pallet. Yet the little village was, in too many words, too far away as she reached the bottom of the stairs her eyes noticed a familiar face she looked again and there on the lobby mirror was a small picture of her mother Christina's eyes burned and her throat tightened as she walked across the room and removed the small photo written on the back was this compelling invitation whatever you have done whatever you have become It doesn't matter. Please come home. And she did. If you're here today and you have committed sins that you are incredibly ashamed of, if you've been in places that you wish you had never been before and done things you wish you had never done before, Jesus' answer to you who don't know him, is this. Whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus will forgive your sin. Jesus will give you his spirit. And Jesus will walk with you mercifully through the rest of your life, slowly conforming you to the image of himself. Now that invitation is not only for unbelievers to come to Jesus. That invitation is for believers to come to Jesus. Many of us think that once we've trusted Jesus, we're on our own now and we're doing our own thing. And we soon find out that we're in the ditch. And we've made some horrible choices, some sinful choices. And so we wait until we get our act together in order to come back to Jesus. The message of this story, the message of the prodigal son is this. Don't wait. Jesus is loving. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will forgive. So if you're a Christian who has done some things you wish you had never done and you're trying to work your way to a point of status where you now can approach God, you will never get there. None of us never work our way to get to status with God. It's all upon the blood of Jesus Christ. So whatever you've done, whatever you've become, it doesn't matter because Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives. Cleanses, Jesus saves, Jesus rebuilds. That is the message of Hebrews of Nehemiah 9. God is great. God is good. And God is merciful. Come to him. If you need to talk about some things, Any of us here would be glad to do that. Any of the elders here, Cody, would love to talk with you about those things. But don't, don't wait. Come to him to experience mercy. Let's pray. Father, we come before you today. And Lord, we are struck in this story by the rebelliousness and stiff-neckedness of Israel. And Lord, we have to agree with the hymnist who said, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Father, we're grateful that the invitation to come is always there for believer, for unbeliever. And they and we will be met with mercy. Father, I pray that we would rejoice that your steadfast love never fails, that your mercies are new every morning. Father, they have to be new every morning because Lord, we stretch your mercies. We slide off the path in word, attitude, motivation, deed, And yet you love us. For those who are in Christ Jesus, your steadfast love never fails. And your invitation is open to all who don't know you to come, take his yoke upon you, and learn. (laughs) Father, may we believe more and more that you're a good and merciful God. May we walk by faith as we trust you to be good and merciful, you will grant us the power to live like Jesus. Father, we are grateful that you're our God. We are grateful that you're slow to anger and abounding in love. We're grateful that you've shown us mercy And Lord, we all here say, and you will continue to show us mercy as we walk by faith in you. May your name be exalted above all gods. May your name be spread abroad. May our worship of you increase as we understand your mercy and your goodness and your greatness oh father we don't worship you as we should may we meditate on hebrew on nehemiah 9. there is so much here to worship you for in jesus name amen